Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Yo, this is your boy, G-Ski Rocks. And this is going out to the lovely, lovely women of the world. I know sometimes you have to make a hard decision. But I want you to think about this. Talk about um, and we're on the 
friend and co-host. Hey, Melissa, is that you? Almost hear you. <laughs> but I want to welcome you to True Life Fridays Radio. And it is November 7th, the day after an election day that we were going to talk a lot about in this hour. And it is the day after my birthday. And some people have said that November November 4th was a early was an early birthday present to me. I could say so. Yeah, I know. You know what? It, it makes up for it makes up for a terrible birthday that I had. I think in 2012. <laughs> but as politics goes back and forth and back and forth, we're going to have many such episodes such as that. We will see what happens in the future. But for the this year in 2014. Uh, things are shaping up okay. And as such, we're going to talk about a lot of the things that are pro-life related uh, in this in this broadcast today. First of all, we're going to open up our broadcast with a word of prayer and our scripture for today, which comes from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, as always. And it reads, this day... I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, choose life so that you and your children may live. Dear Heavenly Father, um, I lift up this broadcast to you. Lord, let us always speak the truth. Let us always speak uh, life into people as this is the what the program is all about lord give us the words give us the passion give us the right truth to speak lord and help it to make a difference in the way we dialogue about these life and death issues that are always in the news that are always being voted on that are so crucial to the direction of our society help us to have great dialogue about that and seek what's right in our heaven in your <clears throat> heavenly son's name Jesus. Amen. All right. Amen. So, um, I hope y'all voted on Tuesday. I really do. And it, I think it really goes to make a big difference uh, that that your vote really does count. You can really change the direction and the course of the politics in this country. And, it, and it's just not politics. Politics, for better or for worse, does trickle into our lives and as much as people want to say that politics don't matter I think we've proven that it does mm-hmm. so so Melissa tell me um, kind of what is your sense of what happened this week and just give me a, a good sense of what you think the next two years are going to bring us mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, I think that um, it was Tuesday was um, a very clear um, response um, from from the American people that we um, uh, reject uh, the the policies of the Obama administration. I think that 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 um, the president hurt um, his uh, fellow Democrat Tuesday because of his um, radical policies, um, and I think that they took it out on their their local uh officials. So 
um, I, I really think that that was um, the cause for such a, um, a dramatic uh, result in favor of the Republicans. And um, it's going to be difficult for the president because he has um, pretty much had his way um, in terms of signing these executive orders to get around um, uh, Congress. But I, I do think that these last two years are going to present a different challenge for him, um, and particularly with the amnesty um, uh, policies that he is committed to, that he is not going to back down from, and he's made that clear. So I think that he is going to have a very rude awakening. And if he's not careful, um, possible impeachment proceeding. So oh we'll yeah, I, I don't think it. I don't think that's been off the table at all. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. you might be right. That. But now there's nothing. There's nothing stopping that process. Um, you know, just the, you know, it's it, it's almost inevitable in my mind that something is going to happen like that. And unless right. he radically changes his platform, I don't see that happening. Oh, right. I, I don't either. I don't either. This president has been so committed to the way he, to, to his ideological, um, I, I'm saying his, his his loyalty to his ideology has been overwhelming. I mean, mm-hmm. it makes makes you look back a couple of dozen years and say, hey, mm-hmm. Bill Clinton wasn't that bad of a president after all. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Um, because he was, at least Bill Clinton knew how to work with people of the opposite party. Mm-hmm. He did, and this president, president has uh, redefined the words bipartisan and cooperation to mean do what I want. And he has Basically. led like that from the first day, mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. very first day. And mm-hmm. um, he kind of mischaracterizes by bipartisanship as, well, I just wish the Republicans would all the things that I want. And well, that, would be, that would be considered bipartisan cooperation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not so certain that the next two years are going to be smooth sailing at all. I, in fact, think it's going to get really rough. Um, mm-hmm. But it makes for good news, doesn't it? So uh, let's not let my cynicism show through too too soon, because I'm saving it for a lot other a lot of other stories later on in this hour. Um, but let's let's take a couple of things in particular to talk about, and then we're going to get some, into something really serious um, that has to do with a three year old boy. And I really want to get to that. So let's get over this uh, this kind of revolution of sorts in in, in both houses of Congress. Um, so, so in particular, and you know the the bane of this this program, what has provided a whole lot of discussion for our show, is the not necessarily on the national election, but the Texas gubernatorial race mm-hmm. uh, between Greg Abbott, the Republican uh, now governor elect, and Wendy Davis. Davis who I'm glad to say is now a former state senator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what happened over there in yeah. Texas is just a beautiful thing because um, she she ran out of gas. She didn't run out of money necessarily. I don't know where all her money was spent. She reportedly had $40 million in her campaign treasury. Mm-hmm. However, she ran out of gas months ago. 
and mm-hmm. it was clear from last year that Wendy Davis was not going to win the the election. Um, and but but they kind of gave it the old college try, rah rah hoo hoo, yeah, okay, I I can give her credit for that. I can give her campaign credit for that. But then immediately in the last 48 hours after the election, her campaign staff went into complete meltdown. And Mm. they're blaming everything and everyone for her loss, except for the fact that Wendy Davis has terrible ideas. Uh, So let's take a look at some of the things that uh, the abortion Barbie was running on and what they're apparently blaming people about. So, uh, the first thing, (laughs) the first thing that they tried to blame um, her loss on was was the fact that not enough white women voted for Wendy Davis in Texas. Now, this being an off-year election... Um, even even if it's an off-year election, you're not going to see as many people at the polls. Anyway, I think the highest turnout over the country was about 31%, which is actually a lot higher than the 20 to 25% that we normally get on an off-year election. But mm-hmm. it, it wasn't good enough for them. Uh, so Wendy Davis's campaign went into tweeting overtime and even RH Reality Check kind of threw in a supportive uh, let's all let's all damn white American women in Texas for the loss of Wendy Davis. And so here's some examples of what they were saying about white women voters. He said they're saying, okay, white married married white women failed Wendy Davis. Uh, let's see. They said white women in Texas obviously prefer subservient existence to freedom and liberty. <laughs> what do you expect from a bunch of Stepford wives? That is what most Texas GOP women are. <laughs> because white women in Texas are taught that a woman's role is barefoot and pregnant over a stove from the time they're born. Gee, Texas, do you feel the love yet? <laughs> and this is what you're going to get when liberals lose, and they lose badly. Now, the problem with this is that they're nailing the blame on white Texas women. Well, you know what? Maybe white Texas women didn't vote for Wendy Davis, but they didn't do it because they were all pregnant and subservient standing over a stove. Because let me remind everybody what the liberal narrative is about women. The liberal narrative about women, particularly white women, is that we are, we, like I'm a white woman, that white women are just one step to the left of their racist white men who apparently have white male privilege and uh, rule the world and rule the state and rule the United States. So we have a clash of ideas here, ladies. Okay. 
we have on the one hand we have feminists who want to say that white people have white privilege and are oppressing people of color all over the place, getting their way, uh, being beneficiaries of this imaginary white privilege they have. And then at the same time, that women are locked in the kitchen barefoot and pregnant and have nothing to, no decisions or minds of their own when it comes to the ballot box. Mm-hmm. Somehow you can't have this both ways. The narrative works whenever you feel like it would work for you. So, you know, today, November 7th, it works for the liberals to lash out at women and say, how dare you? And and then mm-hmm. um, the other 365 days of the year, they can lash out at white men and say, how dare you? Uh, so right. it seems to me that this liberal narrative only works in the situation they want it to work. It's kind of like a, an unfalsifiable, unfalsifiable position. Right. But on top of that, the actual statistics on women, non-white women voting, and they mentioned in particular that uh, well, one of one of Wendy Davis's campaign staff mentioned in particular that Latino women or Latino women, uh, went overwhelmingly in favor of Wendy Davis. Again, that may be true. But in a state that has a very high Latino population, Mm -hmm. the statistics came out that in in areas that are 94%, that have 94% Latinos, only Davis lost with only 44% of the vote. That's not a majority, right? So, um, so she they're they're trying to pick out that more Latina women by percentage voted for Wendy Davis than white women. What does this mean? <laughs> Absolutely nothing, because. It means very little. So a higher percentage of Latina women voted for Wendy Davis than they voted for Greg Abbott, yet the entire population of women in Texas did not vote for Wendy Davis. They voted overwhelmingly for Greg Abbott. Mm. Blah, blah, blah. What does this mean? Absolutely nothing for the Wendy Davis campaign. They're complaining about something that means nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's um unpopular it's, is just not popular. Right. So women voted women are waging a war on women is basically what they're saying. And so they, they want their cake and they want to eat it too. Um and it's just it it's not working. You can't um you can't separate um women and and claim that we are the problem when we're supposedly the victim. Absolutely. So it doesn't make sense. <laughs> right. At, at a loss, you know, Wendy Davis lost 59 to 38%. That's that's near 60-40. Yeah. That's a big double-digit loss. I mean, they're not even talking double-digit. We're talking double-digit times two. Right. <laughs> and, I mean, you know, it's just... <laughs> Right, right. That, that's just 
old. <laughs> it is, and it, but it plays well into the narrative against women's suffrage. You know, back about a hundred years ago, when your complaints, you know, oh, they're just voting the way their their oppressive white husbands did. You know what? I, you know, wait a minute. Uh, women's suffrage said women had the right to vote, and mm-hmm. and could vote their own minds. So mm-hmm. what are you saying? What are they saying? They're saying exactly what anti-suffragists said about 100 years ago, that women don't need to vote. If they're going to vote only what their husbands vote, <laughs> then they don't need to wow. vote. And in, in this case, they're proving that to be true. Oh, if they only voted exactly the same as their husbands vote, why do women need to vote? And apparently yeah. women are to be excoriated for voting like their husbands, apparently. It's, just, it's ridiculous <laughs> to think that women issues are not American issues. Right. But we have to we have to separate women issues from the rest of the the American population um, because we we are so coddled and we're so weak and we're so needy that we need um, a whole branch of politics just to deal with um, issues that we that Americans don't face, but that we as women are are victim to, and it's just, it, it's such a, a, a game of, div, of divide and conquer. It doesn't it make, is. it's incoherent. But we, we as women have, we have value, um, not because of, again, not because of our, our, our body parts. We have, we have the same concerns as, as men. We have the same concerns as anyone else. So it's just, um, they're not, it's just not coherent, um, what, what they're doing. They're not, they're not. It's just. It's just incoherent. I can't believe that they're sitting there and that they're. They just can't accept that she was a bad candidate and that women. That women can actually think for themselves. So right. we can't think for ourselves. We have to think in, in a group tank mentality. Exactly, and and they're grasping at straws, at why mm-hmm. women did not vote for Wendy Davis. Oh please. Can it be more obvious why people did not vote for Wendy Davis? And it wasn't because she just ran a sucky campaign. Most of what she said about her opponent, most of what she said about herself, were proven to be false. You know, that's just, mm-hmm. just one aspect of her life. And then being a very pro-abortion candidate doesn't sit well with ahem, the Latino community. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. And But let's not stop there, because they didn't just stop at blaming white Texas women for Wendy Davis losing. Uh, let's try Ebola. Texas State Senator <laughs> Wendy Davis was steamrolled in her bid to become the state's next governor. And it appears that her staff believes Ebola has something to do with the failure of her campaign. The communications director of Davis's campaign told the Wall Street Journal, Texas was at the center of two issues, immigration and the Ebola scare. That helped drive Republican voters to the polls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure everybody went to go vote because of Ebola on Tuesday. Wait a minute. Hasn't everybody been saying how Ebola is not such a big deal? Uh, <laughs> so on the one hand, it's it's a big deal because it drove, it drove conservatives out of the woodwork to vote against Wendy Davis because of Ebola. I know... I don't know how one thing has to do with the other, but uh, but they're also saying, you know what? You can't really catch Ebola on a bus. Uh, really? Really, Ebola? Really, Wendy? Uh, that's just 
this is beyond grasping for straws. These are this is this is self-flagellation with a with with a comedy whip. I, I mean, really, it's just it's sad. It's very very sad. Mm, um, yeah. So so now <laughs> beyond okay. So this is this is. This is my picture of the most comical thing happening in, in 2014, in the 2014 elections. Now that the GOP will be in control of both houses of Congress, guess what those bitter leftists clinging to their birth control and abortion tools are reportedly doing? They are buying up more birth control because they are so scared that Republicans <laughs> are going to ban birth control. You know, this is not even a talking point anywhere until George Stephanopoulos decided to try to whack Mitt Romney over the head with it in, in 2012. Like, nobody, this this idea of banning birth control it was not even <laughs> on anyone's lips until 2012. Well, anyway, anywho, they're making contraception runs. Apparently, stores are seeing an increase in... Oh, um sales for all kinds of contraception because uh, they're afraid well, they, they're just so afraid they, well well if they can afford it why are they fighting for free birth control if they if they can go and you know rack up on it and for it themselves <laughs> bingo <laughs> bingo you know what they can afford it after all they just proved it we needed a gop turnover to Expose the fact that Obamacare really doesn't make a difference in anyone's lives. If you want birth and cult control, you certainly do afford it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, and then okay, then beyond this, what kind of, what kind of, this is the hardest question here. What kind uh-huh. of response are we going to get from our newly elected GOP? Senators and congressmen. Mm-hmm. Now, um, LifeSite News raised an important question. This is by Dustin Siggins. And so, as a pro lifer, we are put, always, always put into this difficult position where we work hard and elect pro life politicians to office. And then what? Then what? Do we actually get anything in return for our labor and support? Well, you know what? Even two days after the election, sometimes things don't look very good. So Dustin Simmons wrote a Dust, I'm sorry, Dustin Siggins wrote an article and talked about that, and he says, according to Open Secrets. Pro-life campaign contributions totaled approximately $1.4 million in 2013 and 2014. And we're talking about organizations like Women Speak Out PAC, Susan B. Anthony List, and other other pro-life groups. They sent in people to volunteer for campaigns, and they... Are they, they were largely uh, they sent out campaign mailers in favor of uh, of candidates. Mm. Well, in a press conference just Wednesday, Mitch McConnell, who has been reelected and he is probably 
hopefully not, but probably going to be Senate Majority Leader, sent out a, in his press conference, he made some prepared remarks, but did not mention anything about a pro-life bill, something that Marjorie Dannensfelder has been leaning on very heavily, specifically the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act, and wanting, this is one of these things that we pro-lifers want very much to be passed through both houses of Congress and can be done so. Now, yes, uh-huh, the bill, which would ban most late-term abortions, has received a pledge of support by Mitch McConnell, and but yet Wednesday he made no mention of it. John Boehner also focused the statement in a press briefing in the days after the election. He talked about the economy, taxes, debt, regulations, education, etc., all very good but didn't mention anything pro-life. Um, Reince Priebus, who even himself attended the March for Life last year in 2013, and felt so moved to make a statement saying that how much he identifies and appreciates uh, pro-lifers um, speaking to the GOP, about pro-life issues and trying to keep the GOP's feet to the fire, also did not say anything about abortion um, in his congratulatory email that he sent to a lot of GOP supporters. Hmm, interesting. So here I am thinking, if the power belongs to the people, you know what, I can pull it as fast as I can give it. And that's what a lot of pro-lifers need to do. Ted Cruz himself had said, you know, people did not, the American people did not elect Republicans because they like Republicans. Um, Mm -hmm. No. We, that overwhelmingly, the American people elected Republicans to do a job. And if they fail to do so, you know, their loyalty is not with the party. And I think he's 100% correct on it because that's exactly how I feel. Um, mm-hmm. So from here going forward, there's going to have to be a lot of accountability placed on our elected officials, especially those who claimed and ran on pro-life issues. Now, on, mm-hmm. let me tell let me tell tell it this way to our listening audience who still is on are on the fence. If you're on the fence thinking that pro-life issues don't really matter, they're just social issues, elections were determined uh, this year on pro-life, uh, on pro-life positions. It wasn't just taxes and economy and Obamacare. And might I remind people that Obamacare has a huge pro-life element to it. If the HHS mandates against Chick-fil-A and and churches and no, I shouldn't say churches and various Christian organizations, they had to fight up to the Supreme Court to get exemption, their exemption from wasn't enough to tell people that pro-life issues is important. Um, I've got 10 other issues that were election deciders. And people went to the polls because of those things. Not of those things only, but because of those things. Pro-life issues matter, and they matter big. And so I do not want to hear another argument saying that pro-life issues are just social issues. We shouldn't talk about abortion because, you know, they're just social issues. 
I turned around and I had um, given a, a a presentation a couple of weeks ago, weekends ago, uh, talking about pro-life issues and why people need to look at it from a, both a social and political perspective. And I, so I was addressing a, a number of people who are in Christian apologetics, and I said, you know, a lot of people tell me that they don't want to get, get involved in political issues because abortion and pro-life issues is a pro political issue. And I said, that's funny, because when I talk to a room full of people running for office, they kind of want to avoid the the topic, too, because it's a social issue. Mm-hmm. It's both. Let's both, exactly. It's not just both. It's also inevitable. You can't mm-hmm. run away from this. As much as both political politically oriented people and socially oriented people non political I should say want to run away from this. You can't just wash your hands and walk away and say it's someone else's issue. Because mm-hmm. we elect people who make the decisions about these things. And and you can't. You simply can't. It's it's there on the name of, on the ballot, if you vote and you ought to vote, it's there in the policies that you have to live by if you're a business. And if you're now an individual, because apparently, um, I don't know if we talked about this a few weeks ago. Let me quickly say that in the state of California, uh, the state is now requiring churches to purchase health insurance that includes a, a funding for abortion in their mm-hmm. policy. Now, this is not Obamacare, ladies and gentlemen. This is the state, the state of California. And mm-hmm. you can say, uh-oh, what about, what about Hobby Lobby? What about Hobby Lobby? Hobby Lobby is, was a federal issue. It was the mm-hmm. HHS mandate. On Obama, they fought. This has nothing to do with the state of California. So lesson be learned, ladies and gentlemen, that the state can certainly try to impose a violation of your moral conscience on you through your through your dollars, through your wallet. And those of you that said it would never happen, well, I've got a list that is growing and growing of things that are happening today that people have told me would never happen. So I'm going to put you at number 25 or 26 now. And so so this it all this to say that if you thought you could avoid this, eventually it's going to catch up to you because it's not like the leftists that are pushing for uh state funded abortion, privately funded abortion, you fund abortion, they're not going to stop until that happens. There is no way to escape. There is no way to escape it. So either fight this early or fight it when it's too late. Mm-hmm. So um, in that, I want to transition um, to talking about something that, that's latest news, and I, I kind of pushed the rest of the, the talking points that I have down later to talk about this Uh and uh, that's the story of coming out of Pennsylvania. 
where the three-year-old little boy named Scott McMillan uh, was rather brutally murdered by his mother and his mother's boyfriend. And uh, he was tortured and murdered. And apparently this is, I want this story to become a very big story. Hopefully the media will pick it up. Hopefully social media will pick it up and it will become a viral story because um, it goes to highlight several pro-life things that I want um, to point out. First of all, um, I think it's it's maddening and it's heinous to have to to have to witness and to read about the death of a three-year-old boy. And that a little boy had to die in order for us to have this conversation and it be real. This is sadder than anything. You know, we don't want children to be killed. And anybody who want, who who looks at the story needs to understand that this is what's going on here. So a man and a woman are charged with murdering the woman's three-year-old child. They beat him and they abused him until he died. I'm not going to go into details. You guys, everybody can read this online. The details are really horrific. Um, Not only were they arrested and charged with murder, a third adult, a third woman, who is the man's estranged wife, who happened to live with them. That's weird. I don't know why. But she's also charged with um, some form of criminal neglect because she saw this, was a witness to all of the abuse, and did nothing. And that is a crime. Doing absolutely nothing while a child is being tortured and murdered is is a crime in and of itself. And this is so bad. I'm not going to get into the details. But it was not until it was too late to save his life that somebody finally called 911. And mm-hmm. the story that Daily Mail prints and reports that the nurses at the ER, where he finally was taken, uh, where they were crying as they examined his injuries. They were so extensive. This little boy was was so badly beaten and hurt, um, and he had he had. I they don't fix the title. I didn't read where they fixed the time of his death, but he had been unconscious and unresponsive to any kind of. Um, any kind of touch or, or efforts for quite a while before somebody called 911, and I believe it was the it was the ex-wife that called finally called 911. And so here, let's talk. Let's talk about the pro-life issues that are in play here. Let's talk about the death penalty and why I think the law needs to have the death penalty on its list of available sentencing options. Child torture and murder should absolutely be a capital sense, and it is in the state of Pennsylvania, thank goodness, because you cannot talk about putting a value on a child's life and a value on the child's murderer's life and say the child's murderer or murderer's lives are worth more than the child who was killed, especially who was killed like this. Mm-hmm. And 
I think we need to have that huge, I mean, it's always been a debate about the death penalty. We have large numbers of Americans who protest the death penalty, who want to say that the death penalty needs to be abolished. And we have, there are even a lot of people on uh, on the right who are pro-life, who say the only consistent pro-life view is to be against the death penalty as well as being against things like abortion and euthanasia and uh, other pro-life issues. And here's the problem I have with that. When you when you say that the death penalty is off the table, you are putting a value on a murderer's life that is far greater than the person he or she murdered. Mm-hmm. There is a reason, and it's not barbarism, there is a reason why the Old Testament called for a sort of equivalence in in legal in in, a, in justice in civil and legal justice. It was called an eye for an eye for a reason. It was called an eye for an eye, not an eye for your whole family's eyes, as mm-hmm. a limit, <clears throat> as a legal limit. You can theoretically go under that, but you can't have more than that. But the the ethic that is presented to us in the Bible is that we are all talking about equals, human equality. An eye for an eye doesn't just talk about what the sentence should be or could be. It makes an equivalence of one life for another. Mm. And when we say that people can be murdered and their murderers don't necess- don't face I shouldn't say don't necessarily don't face the prospect of capital punishment we lose that equivalence we say that the person who is killed the person's life is not equal to the person who still is living and who did the crime mm-hmm. that does not square with the value of human life that's presented in the Old Testament and the New. I mean, it just goes together, but in the Bible, it doesn't go together. So I absolutely think the law has the right and the ability to pronounce capital punishment, to say the death penalty is a viable option as a sentence. And it's for situations like what happened to this three-year-old Scott McMillan. Mm. Both both man and woman need to pay for this crime with their life. Mm-hmm. This is my opinion. This may not be what the law finally delivers as far as justice, but I want that to be an option. I want that to be available because this child's life is worth that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now, what do you say, um, Melissa? Um, uh, it's such a, uh, it's, it's such a hard thing. Um, it's just an emotional thing. It's, uh, it, you don't. It's hard to grasp um, that people do these sort of things. But I think you're right. I think that if you, um, 
and I think the scriptures are, are right. I, I think that it is um, the value of human life is such um, that God created it with with His image, and to to take it upon yourself to take that away um, does put you in the in the position of losing your life or paying paying for that life with your own. And um, I I don't see anything. I, I see that as very pro life affirming. Um, on the value of the sanctity of human life, as you pointed out, um, I know that there are many who disagree. Mm-hmm. But the value of life is is we need to people need to to understand and know that if you take a life, you it is worth that much. It is worth your own life. You're not going to just walk away. You're not going to um, get to live your your days out. You you um, you have to. To, to pay, you have to pay retribution. It, that's what it is, the retribution I, with with the life that you have as well. But it's just, I, I was reading the details of this case, and I just cannot even fathom. I can't even fathom. Honestly, I don't, I don't, they'll, they'll probably have to um, put them both in some type of solitary confinement because I don't, I, don't, I wouldn't see them surviving um, in the general population. Right. People yeah, were aware of their crime. Which is which is interesting right. how criminals process hurting children in a way that um, you know that they they will take that life they will take it upon themselves and they will take that person out. Yeah, I mean, there's such a thing as prison justice, where um, yeah, where if if the prisoners don't think that the, the sentence that one particular prison was prisoner was given was harsh enough, they will make up for that. It's a uh, it's kind of an irony. Uh, it is I don't have words. I haven't figured out. I haven't figured out what words I want to put to that. Um, yeah. Put to prison justice. Other than that, that even even in the general population of people who are incarcerated, there is a sense of morality. I mean, mm-hmm. they know it. They know mm-hmm. it, and and most people who haven't who haven't convinced themselves, like a lot of academics have, that there's no such thing as a right or wrong, it's just whatever your perception is, that that there is such a thing as an innocent person and there is such a thing as a crime mm-hmm. that deserves some kind of punishment. This is not just a relative issue. This is not moral. I mean, most people in the prison population are not moral relativists. They'll probably tell you yeah. <laughs> they're not and and the you will see that in the most most worst ways i mean those that that commit crime against children are the ones that that are in the most danger in prison i mean mm-hmm. these two this man and this woman would probably be safer uh you know be under house arrest than mm-hmm. um than in a prison. But, you know, yeah, we I do I don't want I have no desire to see people that are not a part of the law. Um right, yeah, exact justice that, yeah. on them. That's not how our system works and that would be the improper thing. That would be Sharia law. And I do not want to see any instance of Sharia law no matter what in this in this country. Um right. so you know, that's the point I wanted to get across. The other one was the fact that here we have a three-year-old little boy, this toddler, who's, 
who's been so brutally murdered. And everybody feels so horrified and awful about it. We want, we scream out for justice. We want to ask why. But you know what? Three years ago, if, if that, if the mother had decided to have an abortion instead, nobody would blink an eye. And and I want to know what the difference three years makes, except for time, except for age. And even academics like Peter Singer and beyond want to say that if you are developmentally not the same as a as a self-aware adult, your life is potentially forfeit. Mm, yep. I mean, Peter Singer himself thinks infants up to, I forget, what is it, nine months or two years, something like that. Um, 18 months or something of that 18 nature. 18 months? Yeah, I'm not exactly, yeah, I don't remember what month he fixes to to this age. But I've heard other ethicists stretch it out to even farther than that, mm-hmm. uh, older age to say that children, if they are not desired by their parents, um, the parents would have the right to dispose of their kids. I think there was a horrific little experiment on a college campus that I read about last week uh, where they did a survey about of college... Oh, it's of Created Equal. Sorry, I didn't mean to talk about that. Created Equal did a... Sometimes they do these surveys and they are seeing year after year when they do these surveys of college students asking them a question, should um, should afterbirth abortion be an option for parents? Should, in, in certain cases, you even up to four years of age. And most of the time, you get the horrified looks, which we hope more people would have, but they're, they're reporting that kids, that college students more and more often, now it's still a very slight, slim majority, only single digits out of a day's worth, but they're seeing this more and more. There are days where they don't see this, and now there are seeing days where they see it more often, where students are saying, are considering, yeah, you know what, you know, if there's a, there's a child that's somehow unaware in some certain way, if they're not functioning in a certain way that's expected of them, uh, parents should have the option of disposing of that child. Four years old. Mm-mm-mm. Should we not be surprised? <laughs> should we not Sorry. be surprised? Academia is fostering this mentality, and it's only going to lead to a pub- more public acceptance of three-year-olds being killed this way and getting and the perpetrators getting away with it. You know, this is mm-hmm. not coming up from the dregs of society saying, you know, I'm going to murder, 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 murder. This is coming down from the ivory towers of our our, mm-hmm. our college universities. Right. Permitting the relativism is being is coming from the educated, well-spoken, wealthy elites in our society. Though they don't they don't connect the dots and see that their that their Ivy League ideas have consequences and real life right. consequences on on real people. Um they're just, you know, selling books and teaching these things, but it there's just real life 
uh, implications of of these issues, and which is ultimately the devaluing of human life. And if when that happens, these things happen more and more and more. Right. And so I'll go back to my other point that I was, I was talking about earlier and saying now is the time. You have a conscience and you want to speak out about these things. Do not wait until it's it's in your backyard, in your home, before you say something. You know, ethics has a way of, of running away with society because we allow it to. Um, mm-hmm. and, and nobody says anything until it becomes really extreme. Oh, it'll never happen. Yeah, well, never is today. And it, but mm-hmm. now, yesterday was the time to say something. So, you know, I want to tell people to pay attention and, you know, take the advice that the government tells you. If you see something, say something, because now is the time to say something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. We have uh, just a few minutes left in this hour, and we're going to take a break. I wanted to go over really quick um, on another story that happened uh, earlier last week and this week. It's just um, Brittany Maynard um, hit the – it was huge in the media. Her story – the story of a woman who had this brain tumor that she was – it was eventually going to claim her life. And it was supposedly it is a painful uh, process to live through before um, you finally die from this brain tumor. And she had made an appointment for death. She was going to take the assisted suicide option in um, Oregon. Is it Oregon or Washington? I'm sorry. Maybe Portland? I think it was Oregon. Yes. Um, to To take... A doctor-approved dispensed um, pill that would end her life because assisted suicide is legal. Well, she decided to she put that off for a couple of days. She had more, and, and before she did that, she was said that November first was going to be the day that she was going to um, commit the suicide. And then she decided to put it off because. She finally found a purpose in life. You know, she found a reason to live after all. And what the reason was, was to campaign and be a voice for it, for legalized assisted suicide everywhere. Oh, okay. So that's what this is all about. Um, she found a reason to live, and that's to be an activist. And then apparently she had some kind of uh, episode where her tumor kind of... Uh, caused her to have a seizure or something happened. And then she decided now is the time. I don't want to experience this anymore. And then the, so just a couple of days after she said she was going to wait, she decided not to wait and went through with it. Um, so now she is deceased. She has become, I you know this is, this is the sickness of the left. She has become kind of a martyr for assisted suicide. Okay. It's legal in the state of Oregon. Why does it need to be legal everywhere else? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, I just read a story about this man named Robert Mitten, who wants to follow in her footsteps. Um, he does not have a tumor <laughs> in his in his brain, but he has some other 
Let's see. Hugh has some other issue. I'm trying to find out what it is. He was given six months to live. Here's the thing. Okay, he was given six months to live in January. Here we are okay. in November. Here we are in November. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. my math is not that good, but I know that November is longer than six months from January. Mm-hmm. He lives in Colorado, and he wants to aid in the effort to make assisted suicide legal in Colorado. Funny how all these people who have just these sob stories about wanting to die and with dignity and commit assisted suicide and all this stuff, um, it really isn't about their story. It's about furthering a cause. (laughs) And, wow, you know, way to take away from the tragedy of it all, I think. Um, So he wants to suffocate himself. Because he's, I think he has heart problems. He was only given six months to live. Now, beside, you know, he's lived beyond his six months. So apparently, you know, he's alive and well enough to campaign for a an effort to legalize assisted suicide. He still wants to kill himself. How do you suffocate yourself? Um, it says here in the Life Site article. LifeSite News article, Life News, I'm sorry, Life News article, that he wants to suffocate himself with helium. So I guess he breathes in helium uh, until he passes out because his brain is not getting enough oxygen, and then he'll die. Okay. Um. Okay. So, but, you know, the, the ironic thing is you can only campaign for something with your time and with your life if you are alive. So if right. you just so he decides to to go to either go to Washington, you know what? Okay, let me just step back real quick. People are committing suicide actually quite frequently across the country, mm-hmm. and they're doing it in states other than Oregon, where it is legal. What's not legal about a suicide is that somebody actively helps you to commit suicide. So all this is not about uh, the effort to uh, to legalize assisted suicide is not about legalizing suicide. It's about legalizing getting help to do it. Mm. Yet people are committing suicide every day in this country. And they're finding a way to do it without assistance. It doesn't take, you don't need help to swallow poison pills. You don't need help to find, you know, there's a show called A Thousand Ways to Die. You don't need help to search out what all those thousand ways are. But all this publicity over assisted suicide just tells me it really isn't about the suicide. It is about bringing legal legalizing. It's about legalizing a practice that is immoral for one and two, a very bad legal precedent for the future. What the state of Oregon has done in legalizing 
assisted suicide is what is happening in Belgium where not just assisted suicide is legal, but euthanasia is legal. And we're seeing a huge uptick in people who don't want to die being killed for their own good and for the good of everybody else. Mm -hmm. Legally, this is not a door we want to open in the United States. Now, Oregon just opened it. It's been open for several years. What's holding back is the rest of the country's ethics saying, I really don't think this is a good idea because what could happen to life on Earth here is what's happening on life on Earth in Belgium, where life is so devalued and quality and experiences are held up in such high regard as to be the only defining, only thing to live for in life, that if you fall below that threshold of it's fun in life, that your life becomes forfeit. And there's Mm -hmm. a very thin line between you get to choose and somebody choosing it for you. It's happening. It's already happening in other forms. We're just going to make it available in a in a bigger way with assisted suicide. Um, so I'm not buying the story where, oh, I just want to die with dignity, and why can't you just let me do what I want? Because it's really not about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, anybody who's got ethical eyes to see has got to see that this is a campaign. This is not about dying with dignity. This is about a campaign. Mm. Right. It's ultimately you are you are choosing. You're saying no to life. You're saying no. You are making the call that there is no more purpose to your existence. Um. So it's it, what you said earlier about suicide. It happens. A lot of people choose that. But th- this yeah. agenda. This is this is just. Uh, this is this is so there's it's such a sneaky agenda because it, it guises itself under the it guides itself under under the guise of compassion that, that they're actually right. the compassionate ones because they are trying to give these people the death that they want. Um, it, it, nothing could be further from the truth. It's why the Hemlock Society changed their name changed their name to Compassion and Choices. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, is that their name now? Yes, that's what their name is. They're no longer known as the Hemlock Society. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's little um, bit like changing the uh, American Birth Control League to Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go yeah. figure. It is just again the value of life and looking at uh, our inherent, our, our just our 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 worth and our, our value um, as human beings versus our functions and our roles and what we're able to do um, and distinguishing between the two. So life is more than um, being able to physically do certain things or not physically do, do certain things. Um, but that it's, it's, a, it's a precious gift. It, it's not something to uh, disregard or to end on, on your own time. Yes. 
Um, and and I don't know that I mean people are going to challenge that. Oh, why can't I live? This is my life. I can end it, and I can live it, and I can end it how I I want and how I desire. Um, you know, I it's it's so ironic to me that people talk this way because I remember a couple of years ago when Torre Neblet, you know who Torre Neblet is, right? He's on MSNBC. He came oh, yeah. to town. He came to town near in St. Louis for um for Black History Month. So St. Louis University's uh Black Student Union, I believe it was, Black Student Union invited him to speak and he came and he talked about gun control, he talked about white privilege, he talked about all this wonderful stuff and my good friend Zena Hackworth had talked because this is her issue. She's like, "Don't touch my guns," and <laughs> he asked a question and saying, "You know, why can't I have um, a right to my own firearm? Because you know, I use it for personal protection. I, I, I have a right to. I mean, I have a Second Amendment right to it, don't I?" And so mm-hmm. he took a step and he kind of wanted to slowly tease this out and says, "You know, your your claim." to want to have to a, a firearm to have your own gun is something that you want it is not he she he was saying that she she did not make the case that this was necessary you can't eat bullets you can't drink guns you don't pay your mortgage off you know there's no utilitarian need for a weapon except to save your life uh but that's a side point <laughs> That he was trying to make. He's saying that she wanted the only reason that she stood up for her rights to having a weapon was because for no other reason than she wanted it. And to imply that the government has no obligation to fulfill your wants. Okay. Let's change the subject matter and talk about this. What obligation, therefore, does the, a government have to fulfill your wants, to live your life the way you want, and to die the way you want? What obligation does the government have to fulfill that want? Touré is correct about his analogy or his, his comparison. Then it should work well here. Mm-hmm. I would say that it only works well here. It doesn't work in reverse. <laughs> And this is all about a lifestyle choice. Yeah, a death style choice, if you will. Mm-hmm. Why does anybody have have to, as a matter of policy, regard your any person's wants to die in a particular way? Mm-hmm. I I really don't see it. Yeah, I don't either. They would they would have to make that case. I just don't see the case for it. I don't see where they have made a case for it. It's more of a, just appealing to emotion, um, but I don't see where they've made a, a, a case for that. Right, and they're going to have to work a lot harder. I mean, I want to see it. I want to see it. I've not seen anything mm-hmm. that convinces me that this is any more than a permission to make make these type of choices that is not much different than than – than a choice to do other uh, impossibly bad things, like kill a three-year-old boy. 
I I just really don't understand how they don't equate, equate that just because it's happening to yourself doesn't mean it's not happening. <laughs> okay, so um So uh, let's let's see um should I go on a break or should we just wrap this up? Um I think we should just wrap this up. Yeah, and yeah. talk about a couple of stories and head out cuz uh it's Friday. I want to celebrate. I haven't, yeah, I haven't got <laughs> It's my birthday. <laughs> I'm going to have a cupcake. I don't care what anybody says. I'm having a cupcake. <laughs> it's her birthday. It's her birthday. <laughs> uh, so uh, one last thing. Let's re- well, we're going to return to the story coming from Poland, of all places. Now, this is something that I was really disappointed to read about. This is what happened in Poland. Um, Let me try to call up the story. In the meanwhile, I'll talk about it. In Poland, a pro-life group decided to um, put up posters in a protest in front of a hospital. Now, in Poland, unlike here in the United States, abortion is on demand without apology. Let's just put it that way. And hospitals actively perform abortions. You know, in one section of the hospital they are giving birth to children, in another section of the hospital they are killing children before they are born. Mm-hmm. So this pro-life group decides to protest abortion in front of the hospital. And they got into legal trouble because they said of all things that they were not allowed to say that abortion is killing. Well, mm-hmm. if it's not killing, what is it? Yeah. Interestingly enough, this is what the story says about this is what the story says about what abortion is. They said don't call it killing a baby. You have to call it ending a pregnancy. Pregnancy termination. So now the hospital is suing these pro-lifers for defamation based on allegations that they're disseminating false information, equating abortion with killing. According to the plaintiff, which is the hospital, Pregnancy terminations cannot be called killing unborn children. The hospital claims that by equating those two things, the defendants generated negative publicity in the media and harmed the hospital's business. Let's get back to basics here, folks. Yeah, what? What is a pregnancy termination? <laughs> Yeah. It's okay to say that abortion is a pregnancy termination, but you cannot therefore then say that abortion is killing an unborn child. Right. Well, pregnancy termination, that's, I mean, that's, how how vague is that? I mean, when you give birth, you're terminating a pregnancy in a sense. Your pregnancy is over. So that doesn't that has nothing to do with um 
what what is happening to the child. It it doesn't describe if the child was born or if the child was killed. So what is so wrong about saying that the child was killed if they are proudly performing these these procedures? It's it's youth. It's I don't even want to say dignify it with saying it's in the euphemism, which is it is it is a euphemism. Pregnancy termination is a euphemism for abortion in this context. But to to not say how do we define this? I mean, to me, this is so obvious. I don't really understand why we have to spell it out in terms like this. Pregnancy termination is killing of the unborn child at this hospital. They don't call it, when you go into the hospital and you have a baby. The doctor does not congratulate you on terminating your pregnancy. Right. <laughs> the other walk in the room and say, "Here's your baby. You're glad we terminated your pregnancy. Aren't you so happy?" Um <laughs> So why do we why do they shy away from defining pregnancy termination when the definition of this type of termination is killing an unborn child. Yet, now these pro-lifers are being taken to court for just defining abortion. What they're doing. That's, yeah, what they're doing. Yeah. Right. So I hope that they win their case in court and that this blows abortion in Poland wide open so that people can finally stop they can stop euphemizing it and not understanding what's actually happening. I mean, imagine. Imagine me saying, I to analogize this, say, I want, I want to take the line from Meet the Fockers. I want a chimichanga. And the line says, go have a chimichanga. And I said, turn around and tell me, no, you just want something to eat. Um. Yes, the answer is yes, yes, yes. I do. So we cannot. We can no longer talk about abortion. And I hopefully we don't get it to the point in this country. If pro-lifers have anything to say about this, to get away from this idea that that abortion is anything other than killing an unborn child. I hope we never get to that point where we totally divorce. The definition of what an abortion is from us using that term. That's to me that's crazy. That's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Well it's it's um it, it it's like you said though, we can't the the desire to have actual like intellectual conversation and real conversation about this issue can't happen if we can't even say what we're what we're arguing about. I mean, how can we how can they don't they don't they're not interested in hearing what we have to say or to even defending their position because they're covering up what they're doing and so mm-hmm. it just it, there's just a stalemate it's it's when you when you can't defend your position you have to silence opposition i.e. take them to court for bl- being completely honest about what it is that your position is because you refuse to admit it because you know that it's indefensible yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, whenever people see what an abortion is, except for those who deny that's what they're actually looking at, um, people, you cannot look at little arms and legs 
You cannot look at body parts and say that's not human because it looks human. It is human. Those pictures are of actual aborted children. Call mm-hmm. it whatever you want. It, that's It's still the picture stares back at you and say, this is what we're doing to our unborn children. This is what we're doing to the next generation. You cannot euphemize this away. You can call it whatever you want. It's still what it is. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So um, I'm just going to skip ahead to our stupidest thing ever because we've ha- gone a couple of weeks without having a really good one um, and not having it broadcast. And I'm just kind of itching to to show one off. And what I picked this this week, if I can find it. Yeah, what I picked this week is this is the reaction coming out of out of our dear, dear Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who I think has got the toughest job in the world. Yes, even tougher than the president. She has to speak. That's that's for her, I think that is the hardest thing any human has ever been asked to do. And so she <laughs> Post-election spin becomes our... Hey, this is not first class. election on Tuesday. How why is it that the president was not out stumping for a lot of the Senate campaigns uh in the country and helping out? And because he was conspicuously absent, uh they they sent out Bill Clinton, they sent out Hillary Clinton, they sent out all kinds of other people, but not Barack Obama. And this is her answer to that. Normally, the, the president's party in a second term, midterm, loses an average of 29 seats. And, I mean, at worst, we're going to be in single digits. And I think we could even be in single, single digits and, and pick up a few seats. In the House. But, in the House. But, but just, what, sorry, and I think we hold the Senate. But just out of curiosity, what, what, competitive, what, just, ask, just what competitive Senate race is the president campaigning in? Like I said, the president has been com- campaigning in competitive races. But, but what competitive Senate race is the president campaigning in? Is there one? There are races that the president is campaigning in around the country. And he's also governing. He's doing, he's doing his job. And he's also spent uh, time re- recording robocalls and doing radio spots and making sure that our GOTV focus is as aggressive as possible. So we're deploying the president where he can be the most helpful. And he's both doing GOTV balance and GOTV messaging. And it's been a welcome addition. We very much appreciate it. No, our candidates appreciate it. Yeah. I'm sure they appreciate it a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, if you didn't catch that, she was expecting the party to lose about 20, what was it, 29 seats? Wow. Um, I don't know that there was an exchange of 29 seats, but it was double digits, way far beyond what she predicted as her single digits. So the uh, Democrats on the national level got whomped on Tuesday, and she can't quite bring herself to even admit it, even today. 
so sad for her. Um, but this is, like I said, this is probably the toughest job in the world for her. <laughs> I feel sorry for her. It's <laughs> a tough week. It is. It's going to be a very – the rest of the – when they're talking about this for the next two weeks to come – it's only going to get worse for her. Uh, you know, I, 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 she's a very creative woman. I think she'll pull through. <laughs> so, yeah. everybody, visit our page um, on Facebook, our True Life Fridays radio page. Come and visit us at truelifefridaysradio.com. And listen to our show every Friday. The number to call in, just so you can write it down, is 760-542-3907. Look for our posts on Facebook. And join us whenever you can. Uh, this has been a great broadcast, everybody. I'm so thankful for my wonderful co-host, Melissa. Woo-hoo! <laughs> you have a good birthday celebration, Ms. Wong. Thank you so much. Thank you. And you have a great weekend, too. Everybody, have a good night. We will see you back here next Friday. Good night. God bless.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.